Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Lectures Podcast. Today's episode is part of our World of Coffee Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at the event every year. Since you're with us today, I'm guessing you're into podcasts. Do you know about Recap? It's our new podcast offering a brief overview of recent coffee developments in less than five minutes. You can subscribe by following the link in today's show notes. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 World of Coffee in Berlin. Don't miss this year's lecture series that takes place in Warsaw in June. Visit worldofcoffee.org for more information. If you'd like to follow along, you can find the slides for this lecture linked in the show notes below. Okay, let's get started. We're going to jump right in. All right. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm the room host for this lecture, and I'd now like to welcome you to Negotiating Place and Taste, How Coffee Becomes Glocal. Today's speaker is Noah Berger, and she's a sociology PhD candidate at the EHESS in Paris, France. She studies the specialty coffee value chain with Brazil and France as examples of a producing country and a consuming market, respectively, to understand how the notions of quality and specialty are negotiated and defined in two institutionalizing specialty markets. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Yeah. So let's start by a guided imagination exercise. If I asked you to imagine a traditional Parisian cafe, what would it look like? What kind of chairs, for example, would you find there? What would be the atmosphere? What kind of food would you eat there? What would the waiter look like? Do you think it would look like this? No, probably not. Not traditional Parisian one as you imagine it. Maybe like this? No. And I mean, would you find, I don't know, banana bread and oatmeal cookies? Maybe not. Did you have like maybe this in mind, right? These little chairs perched on the sidewalk, a garçon, and maybe, you know, this warm kind of old-style atmosphere. Now, this on its own is, of course, no news for any of you that specialty coffee shops tend to have a certain look and that this look may look more like Melbourne or Scandi or Brooklyn than what we come to expect of, you know, a traditional setting. But what I want to say from these little images is two points. The first one is more obvious that we have visual codes that we dialogue with and correspond with, right? And the second point that I think is more interesting is that although we tend to think of the specialty coffee market as the coffee market, as a global entity, it always operates in a context, right? It always operates in a city, with a history, and with tradition. And what I want to do today is I want to account for that context. Now, context can mean many different things, right? It can mean the cityscape that we operate in. Like, is the neighborhood we open our coffee shop in a gentrifying or a gentrified neighborhood? Is it high-end? Is it popular? Who are the people who live in the place where we operate? It could also mean local tastes and 
everything regarding food, what is the culinary tradition of the place we sell coffee in, and what is the place of coffee in that tradition. But it can also mean visuals and aesthetics, right? The way that we usually tend to expect coffee shops to look like. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to use Paris as an example, because I think it's a really interesting case, right? So Paris has traditionally been renowned to be the cafe city. It's known for its iconic cafes. But for a long time, it also enjoyed a very dubious reputation of having bad coffee. Now, this is changing over the last decade, maybe. Maybe 15 specialty roasteries have opened in France, uh, in Paris specifically. And there are maybe today 100 specialty coffee shops operating. And it seems like a new one is opening every day. And while initially many of the pioneering coffee shops did reflect this kind of Anglo-Saxon-inspired aesthetics, something new is happening, has been happening for a while and is happening more and more, which is specialty coffee shops that are drawing more and more on traditional visual cues from the traditional visual cafe and are basically trying to look and connect with the general culinary industry. And they also do this by leveraging the history of the Parisian cafe. Now, I wanna use the case of Paris to make two points. First of all, I wanna talk about how specialty coffee may or can become more local through taste, but also through design, how it can connect to local culture including local culinary culture and design as well. But I want to show that this is not the first time that coffee is or may be becoming local. Uh, coffee has become local in France in the past, and now it's again maybe reintroduced, this time in its kind of specialty life. But there is a very important difference, and I want to talk about that difference, what is different this time. And the second thing I want to say is I want to ask, how does specialty coffee, initially very much associated with uh, Anglo-Saxon culture in both looks and tastes, how does it adapt to the culture it tries to settle in and the countries in which it is introduced? What does it mean for coffee, a global commodity, to become local? And then how do we balance and negotiate the global and the local and also tradition and innovation? How do we represent those two things that can be maybe not contradictory, but in certain tension between them? So let's start from the beginning or the beginning of coffee in France, at least, not of coffee, generally speaking. And what I want to show you is how a local cafe landscape and a local drinking style formed in France and also to have a better understanding of kind of the traditions and the aesthetics that we correspond with. And I'm drawing very heavily on my historical account from Professor Morris's book that I highly recommend reading, Coffee, a Global, a Global History. So let's begin in the 17th century. I'll go over it briefly. So coffee first arrived in France around 1664, but the point where it became really popular is with the visit of a delegation 
from the Ottoman Empire to the court of King Louis XIV, King of the Sun. So this Ottoman delegation came in and they stayed for a year at the court to try and, you know, diplomate. <laughs> and during their stay, they set up a beautiful Ottoman-style Turkish pavilion. And in this pavilion, they pampered the court with Turkish delicacies, baklavas, for example, but also coffee. And this sparked a wave of what they called Turcomania. As you can see in this lovely portrait of a French man sporting a turban. And this Turcomania, as often happens with trends, spread from the royal court to the streets of Paris, from Versailles. And coffee shops where coffee was drunk started sprouting like mushrooms after the rain. But there was one place specifically that really managed to leverage the hype and set the tone for all the coffee shops that would come after, not only in France, but also in Europe. You may know this place because it still exists. Le Procop was set in 1686 by an Italian immigrant, Francesco Proscopio, and it was quite removed from what we're used to thinking of the you know, traditional Parisian cafe. It's much more luxurious, and it was indeed an establishment for the elite with porcelain cups and marble floors and chandeliers. And it also set kind of the tone for what the coffee shop would become in French culture. Initially, patrons came for alcohol, actually. Then they stayed for the coffee. And in the end, it became much more about the place than the drink itself. The coffee shop became a place where people came to socialize. And while initially those cafes were very much a place for the elite. This did change um, around the time of the French Revolution. The French Revolution helped spread the cafe from the elite to everyone else. And then what you start seeing is those places popping up that have a much more working man vibe and aesthetics where people come to gamble, they come to drink. Sure, they come for the coffee too but it's really a place to, to socialize, to hang. And um, industrialization helped push this trend forward. And we ended up with a sort of fusion maybe of the elite institute and the working men cafe, which kind of created the Parisian cafe that we know today. Now, we are used to thinking of the Parisian cafe very much as a democratic space. Right, we were used to thinking that this was the place where revolutions brewed, it was a place for exchange for everyone. And in fact, this was not exactly true. First of all, revolutions were brewed more in salons, in people's homes than the cafes. And the other important point to make that at this point, sure, the Parisian cafe becomes a place that's open to everyone also through the way it looked, but it's still very much gendered space. And it's actually interesting, it's precisely because of the newly public character of the Parisian cafe that it ended up excluding women. Something that Jonathan Morris points out is that very few women actually set foot in those cafes because they feared being mistaken for prostitutes. So bourgeois women actually opted for hot chocolate drunk at home as their drink of choice. And this is where coffee comes in as well. 
right? Because there was an important development that helped democratize and localize not only the cafe space, but coffee itself. And that was the introduction of milk, the incorporation of milk into coffee and the creation of the cafe au lait. Right, something that also happened, of course, in other countries with the cappuccino and the cappuccinner. And introducing coffee and milk actually achieved three interesting things and helped localize coffee in three different ways. First of all, it helped open it up to women because incorporating milk into coffee made it resemble hot chocolate more, made it look more refined and also made it sweeter so women felt more welcome at that cafe. The second thing is that it just basically helped spread coffee even further into the general public. Because at the time, uh, many people would again opt for hot chocolate for breakfast. Why? It was sweet, it was fulfilling, it was um, also very calorific, and cafe au lait answered many of these demands, plus it had caffeine. So that became a breakfast staple and also a cookbook staple at the same time. And the last point that is maybe the most interesting is that coffee became more French because when you incorporate milk that's, you know, a French product into a beverage that's not only black physically, it's also symbolically black, exotic, representing something that is outside, right? That is, comes from the Arab world. And when you incorporate milk, a white, French local food into coffee, you whitewash it both physically and symbolically. Um, so at this point, coffee seems to have really won the heart of the French and came to symbolize something that is very democratic, that is part of the local culture, um, representing every section of society, from the royal court to the proletarian revolutionaries. But before I move on, just a little important side note about coffee as a democratic drink. So I said that it wasn't precisely the place where revolutions brewed, but presenting coffee as like a democratic local staple also helped camouflage or hide the fact that behind it was a very oppressive reality of production dynamics because coffee at the time was grown in France's colonies in the Caribbean under honestly atrocious conditions and whitewashing or democratizing coffee also means that. Um, now at the same time that the cafe developed aesthetically, France has also developed a national drinking style to create what we today think about as the Parisian cafe. So there was basically a series of events that helped or created coffee as we know it today from uh, the British doing a siege on France during Napoleon's time and the French having to resort to making coffee out of chicory, to using instant coffee uh, during the First and the Second World Wars as a cheap alternative. That coupled maybe with a strong Italian influence kind of created coffee drinking as we know it today. Basically, darkly roasted, robusta beans, sometimes mixed in with chicory still, surprisingly. And this is how coffee came to be, more or less, what we think of as French coffee today. Now, something happened during the 1990s, right? In a way, coffee was reintroduced to France through a very different itinerary this time. 
you probably all know the term the second wave, right? So the second wave of coffee brought coffee from Italy as it was reinterpreted maybe by American culture and introduced cappuccinos and lattes and also an American take on the coffee shop. And we start seeing many Starbucks and Starbucks-inspired venues that look nothing like the Parisian cafe that we're used to. And the coffee is also very different. And the third wave that arrives in Paris about a decade later, mid-2000s or so, continues this trend somewhat. And the first specialty coffee shops that open in Paris do reflect strong Anglo-Saxon influences in both design and in menu, and are more evocative maybe, again, of the Brooklyn, Melbourne, uh, Stockholm aesthetic than the Parisian cafe. I do want to highlight, though, I don't think this is, or I'm not implying, this is a bad thing, because we're used to also hearing a lot of people, especially in Paris, saying, uh, yeah, all the coffee shops, they look the same, they don't look French, they look so Anglo, we should cater more to the local population. But design and aesthetics that are more Anglo-influenced have an important role, right? Because especially when um, an industry is new, you need to single to signal to your customers that what you're doing is different. People do not know what they'll be tasting at a place when they see it. And you basically need to use design and aesthetics to say or to signal, we are doing something different. We are part of a revolution in coffee that maybe has started somewhere, right? In Australia or the United States, but now it's coming here. So initially, this has an important role to kind of signal to customers that the place caters or is the best match to their lifestyles, to their tastes, to what they seek. But However, as specialty coffee started really taking hold in Paris, this started to change. And from the very get-go, I mean, coffee shop owners in Paris did have in mind catering and dialoguing with local culture. So, for example, La Caféotec offered a sommelier en café training inspired by the country's prolific wine industry, focused again on the restaurant sector from the very beginning. Belleville Brûlerie invited their customers to rediscover filter coffee that was called in France often sock juice, jus de chaussette. And Belleville also specifically drew on a post-revolutionary French aesthetics in the design of their cafes, packaging, even work overalls that you can see just behind you and two of the Belleville members over here. And the latest addition to the Parisian coffee scene is a project founded by uh, Chef Alain Ducasse that is another interesting example of how to leverage French tradition through design and aesthetics. So one of their locations, the one that you can see in the photo, uh, references more like the uh, Parisian chic cafe while also combining elements from like the industrial, artisanal working men cafe with a big zinc bar that you can't exactly see here and uh, antique coffee making machines. They also, for example, serve their coffee accompanied by locally roasted almonds and madeleines instead of muffins. But before I move on, just a little comment. All this is nice and fine, but as sociologists, we always try to connect what we see to larger trends. And it's interesting maybe to point out how leveraging tradition also connects to larger trends in global capitalism. 
And there is very interesting work by two sociologists uh, called Luke Boltansky and Arnaud Esquer, who talk about how we leverage also the past and tradition to create value. And what they tell us is that as the margins made from mass production of commodities in the global south decrease, we try to find new ways to create value and therefore revenues. And one of the interesting ways to create value of revenues is to mobilize the past to distinguish between standard and special objects. For example, you take two cars, two old cars. You say, this car is old and this car is vintage. So it receives emotional narrative value, which also helps increase revenues. So it's always interesting to try and look at phenomena that are happening uh, in the industry also through a perspective of what's happening generally in our economy. But coming back again to the beginning, I said that there was a key difference, right, between the first time that coffee became local and this time, the maybe second and third waves. And the key difference is that upon its first arrival in France, the geographical and cultural origins of coffee had to be erased for it to become local, right? For coffee to become European or French, it had to stop being Ottoman. It had to stop being Ethiopian. And a significant difference is that specialty coffee origin is at the heart of what specialty coffee is, isn't it? So this time around, it's not really possible or we don't really want to camouflage the place where coffee comes from to make it part of the local culture. And while there were roasters even as early as the 1880s that did talk about origins, like for example, Verlet, they did highlight it as an exotic good, right? As still a product that is not at all French and roasted it also very darkly to cater to local tastes. While specialty roasters today at least try to roast in a way that still maintains the taste of origin, the taste of terroir. And getting actually to terroir, it's an interesting example in the French case specifically, because we, when you talk about the terroir of coffee, you place it in a way in semantic proximity to the French culinary culture, while also highlighting the origin. It's a really good example of how Specialty coffee, in a way, kind of symbolically, again, belongs to a few places. Is it the terroir of Brazil or is it somehow also part of that more symbolic like tradition or terroir of French culinary customs? And this is why I want to suggest that maybe specialty coffee can't really become local completely and it's no longer or might not stay completely a global or shouldn't be a global product, but maybe it's something more like glocal, a term often used in sociology, a mixture of global and local, it's pretty straightforward. And the process of turning coffee into a global product is done through both semantics, visuals, roasting choices, and I think it's interesting and important to understand all of the different elements to understand the place of specialty coffee in the place, in the spaces where it um, operates. I think this 
actually becomes even more important, these questions, when you take into account the role that we often attribute to coffee shops in gentrification, right? So how do you create spaces, how do specialty coffee create spaces that are physically, virtually, symbolically open and inviting and connect with local culture and connect with the neighborhoods we're based in while still maintaining or representing the origins of coffee and its terroir? How do you do it in a way that reflects both tradition and the future? And well, this is another interesting point, because while specialty coffee might correspond with traditions, it's also very much about innovation, right, and the future. We highlight always how we seek new ways to enhance quality that are more sustainable, are more ethical, and are transparent. And it may be interesting to consider the way in which the spirit of innovation, the spirit of newness, is communicated through spaces, design, packaging, branding, and social media. For example, when we try to talk about innovation, do we turn to technology as our inspiration? If we do, how do we mediate this with making our spaces still very welcome and accessible, inviting for everyone? Do we do this by leaning on the past, corresponding with previous revolutionary periods, for example, or historical periods? And I think maybe the most interesting question, is the idea of innovation and change and maybe even the future in our heads is represented by an Anglo-Saxon aesthetic. Do we imagine the future is looking like Brooklyn in Australia? Should we? I'm not, I don't have an answer for this, but I think it's a question that we definitely all should be asking ourselves, which just leads me to the conclusion, I guess, of what I'm trying to bring here or what I'm trying to say, because as a sociologist, as a social scientist, I do not endorse practices. I don't think that there is a good or a simple choice. The point of what I was trying to show today is that there are choices and that every choice has a context. Historical context, local context, traditions, and that this as a result has implications. And I think if we want to succeed and grow in the places where we operate and also if we want to do it in a conscientious way, then it's worthwhile to be aware of the history of the place where we're in, and of the consequences of the choices we make, including how we design our coffee shop spaces. I would be very happy for any comments, critiques, questions. Uh, like the Belleville, are there more Parisian cafes which are incorporating specialty coffee service in a traditional cafe format? Yeah, I think there are. There are um, more and more traditional cafes that are previous, previously traditional cafes never thought about serving good coffee. And so I know talking to all of the other wholesale roasters in Paris, no one really could penetrate into the traditional cafe market. And while I think in terms of specialty, people coming from a specialty background doing a Parisian cafe, we haven't seen a ton of that. What we have seen is Parisian cafes deciding that, oh, actually they can serve better coffee and that they maybe are interested in serving better coffee. So I think it's been more the existing restaurateurs and, um, and cafe owners opening up to different ideas of what coffee can be. And yeah, specifically about the service, it's a very, very interesting question. And I, I think it's, from, from interviews I'm doing, it seems like it's beginning to come up. There are places that talk about this more openly. For example, 
I'm, I'm coming back again to Alain Ducasse just because I think it's interesting. They did an interesting semantic choices where instead of calling the baristas, they call them cafeliers. And they try to kind of bring the service into the fine dining codes as well. And part of, uh, part of that. So there is, I think in, in the case of Belleville, then it would be maybe uh, a very different perspective to something that is more friendly, more like adapting to the neighborhoods that they're in as well. There's more this neighborhood vibe. I think some places definitely think about the service and how to adapt either through something that is neighborhood based or more fine dining codes. Yeah, that's, that's my impression so far. <coughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I, I want to discuss, I mean... Uh... Um, so the question that he asked, I don't know if you heard, he, as, as a producer, asked about pricing and how do we account for pricing in all of this. As a producer, how do, how do these things maybe correspond to negotiating prices and making sure producers are better paid also for what they do? And again, it's not my field of expertise. I'm cautious not to talk too much about producing countries because I haven't done field work uh, yet. But for me, it again comes back to question of context, choice, and consequences. Because when you choose a general direction for your coffee, if you're gonna, for example, target more uh, wider reach, lower prices, right? So your coffee can be accessible to more people, but you have to keep your prices kind of low for that. Then that has consequences in the, in the sense that the price that you pay for coffee is lower, but then maybe you can reach more people. If you go more for a high-end branding, then that means that maybe you can charge more for your coffee, but you reach less people potentially. I don't know the, the numbers, or maybe there is someone here that, that could add something on that, but eventually a lot of the problem, I think, doesn't lie with what I was talking about. It's a lot about market dynamics. And even if you charge more for your coffee, I guess, that doesn't mean that more comes back to the producer, right? That depends a lot on the importer or if you're doing direct trade and the kind of agreement you have. So I think the answers to your question, design and visuals and representation, of course, play into that. But I don't think, I, from what I see, I don't think that's, the, that's where the answer or the, the solution is. I don't know if I answered your question. I, I guess if I can speak from our experience, we had, in the way this relates back to what Noah's talking about, so we pre I had previously operated a cafe that looked like a, a Berlin Swedish cafe. And it's interesting that the price we were able to charge in that environment versus the price that we're then able to charge at La Fontaine, which looks like a typical Parisian cafe, we, we ended up having to negotiate price with our customers all over again. So we were able to, whereas in a more globalized specialty coffee space, people knew what to expect in terms of price and were willing to pay more because they knew they were in with something different. But when Noah talks about opening up to more people, which is what we were trying to do with La Fontaine, creating a space where more people felt accessible, we ended up having to go back and renegotiate price with our clients. And so I, it, there is a link, I think. I was interested in in something that you said about <clears throat> about having to lose the coffee or the coffee space having to lose one identity in order to become French. You know, it had to lose its say Arabic or Ethiopian identity in order to become French, and and that seems to be sort of a thesis of substitution, cultural substitution, or you know, and um, I'm wondering if you ever saw or you've ever thought about examples where 
it's a fusion instead of a substitution. So I'm thinking about the, the example in the US about Starbucks become integrating sort of the American fast food tradition with the Italian language and ethos and cuisine. And that seems like a, some, something like a synthesis rather than a substitution. Also, what we're seeing in, in, in the States right now is a similar phenomenon where other cultures are, are fusing yet again. So like in Southern California, we have a Latin American coffee culture emerging that is sort of fusing the Starbucks Italian American model with Latino ingredients, drinks, and language sometimes. But anyway, I'm, I'm wondering if that happens in Europe as well. Absolutely. When I was talking about erasing origins, I think that was definitely true up to maybe a certain point. Maybe in the case of coffee, it is the, the second wave in Starbucks that kind of signaled the shift. And I think, again, it's always important to place coffee in the larger context, not of, only of culinary industries, but just culture in general. And I think the culture of consumption today is very much a, a, a culture of fusion, right? We, I mean, we value sort of assemblage from different cultures in different places. And that is something that grew during the 20th century and is definitely visible in coffee. I do not think that Starbucks uh, is an example of uh, completely reappropriating. There, there are definitely elements of reinterpretation, um, which is, I believe is, is some of what you say in your work as well. There is an element of reinterpretation and fusion because Starbucks actually Instead of erasing origins, it leverages them, right? It says, not, not the Ottoman origins, not Ethiopian, a little bit Ethiopian origins, but like the Italian, for example. They use the fact that their coffee is supposedly Italian style or whatever to say, this imbues our coffee with, endows our coffee with quality. So yeah, this is definitely a more a culture of fusion, which I think what the idea of a glocal as well expresses, as well as a cosmopolitanism. All of these ideas are just very dominant in the consumption culture. Yeah, so definitely agree. Thanks, Noah, and uh, fabulous presentation. I wanted to just go on a, bit, a, a little bit about the sort of the distinctiveness of the, of the French format, actually, because it strikes me in one sense there's an issue about what about coffee, but there's also an issue about service format. And if there, if there's one thing when I think about service format that differentiates, let's say, France and perhaps Mediterranean European countries from the Anglo-American, it's actually alcohol, in the sense that the cafes and the traditional French cafe would be serving coffee during the day, but also alcohol mixed with that. I mean, not literally mixed with the coffee, although probably that as well, but, but you know, you would do both formats. You do both things in the same space. And one of the successes, actually, I think, of the recent coffee shop format, let's call it, in the Anglo-American is actually to have separated out those things, which is also quite a traditional thing that we, so you know, you, the pub is a very separate space from the cafe and more recently the coffee shop in, in the UK. And one of the attractions of the coffee shop was that those people who didn't want to go to a pub, which might well be women, be people with children, might be people like me that didn't really want to drink that much, found a place that was a public space where they could go and, in, and indulge themselves. So what I'm wondering is whether or not in France there's been a, a suggestion well, that actually we can take that tradition of being able to combine the two, alcohol and coffee, but actually 
play with the global in terms of play with the sort of, you know, the third wave or whatever, but use a French format of being able to use both without, without a problem. So I'm just interested in your reflections on that. Thank you. That's a wonderful point, and I haven't thought about this at all. And it's true, I haven't had time to touch upon this in the talk, but originally the first cafes in Paris, the ones who got licensed, there was actually a, a battle between different guilds of merchants on who would get to set the first coffee uh, cafes in Paris. And the alcohol vendors won. They won the bid to be the ones to actually operate places that sell coffee. So the first places that offered coffee in France sold both alcohol and coffee, and that was part of their success. And there, was, there were uh, travel writers of the time that actually remarked on how how different the Parisian cafe was from the British cafe, for example. Uh, places where people were very drunk, <laughs> free-spirited, very esoteric types that frequented those places. And it's true that I didn't, I don't know if you know of any examples, but I don't know of anyone in Paris right now that thinks about this kind of direction of making the coffee shop more of a place where these things can coexist. Uh, most cafes, I think all cafes in Paris close by 6, 7. There is no place that's open in the evening, right? I think. La Fontaine. Right. Yeah, yeah, true. La Fontaine. But it's not, I don't know, it's not something that I heard mentioned very often. Maybe that's part of the original charm of the Parisian cafe. That's a place that's poly, how do you say polyvalent? where you can do multiple things, you can come to eat and drink, and but it's a very interesting point. Thank you. I have a question for you. One of the things people have been talking a lot about in France right now are notions of authenticity. And I'm curious about how you see authenticity as it relates to cafes and coffee shops in Paris. And also one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm curious how you respond to this as a sociologist, is the idea of authenticity as, as it's discussed feels to me as a very Anglo-American idea that's almost Brooklynized itself. And, and I'm wondering how you see that sort of questions of authenticity with how it relates to France. Thank you so much for this question because authenticity, I think, is, is, is a fascinating concept because it drives our culture in so many different ways. And it's, uh, for me personally, it's at the heart of my PhD. I didn't talk about this today. And I think it's fascinating in the context of coffee because I think it's true. We don't realize, we, we often judge things as being authentic or inauthentic. And we don't realize how much this is, from a sociological point of view, a sociological construction. There is no, for us at least, there is no such thing as something that is really authentic, right? We interpret something as authentic when we think that it's um, loyal or true to itself. But yeah, what we think about as authentic changes very much over periods of time and over places and has a lot of contradictions. For example, how can we uh, view, I don't know, completely different world, but people who go to reality shows, we can talk about authenticity while it's a completely staged setting. And in coffee, you see, again, very different directions and very different choices regarding authenticity. So you have like the classical way of talking about coffee that is initially more maybe exoticizing, narrativizing, and, and Again, another conflict, because how do you talk about origins and the stories of producers? How do you put, how do you give that voice and space 
without flattening it down to, you know, poor farmers in poor countries and portraying the more complex reality of that. Then you see other forms, newer forms of communicating authenticity around, for example, transparency and traceability, very trendy in coffee right now, where there's a direction saying, no, authenticity is not about the narrative about the story, it's about authentication. It's about facts, it's about being able to go back and put numbers on things and being able to verify and distributing the trust. So something for me, like authenticity, is, is a wonderful thing to, to research because you realize that there is no one way to create, or another way to create authenticity, like, is authenticity the emotional experience that you have when you're drinking coffee? You have coffee shops today that are not even putting the origin, especially coffee shops, they're not even putting the origin of the coffee on the package, they just put tasting notes, because for them, authenticity is, you're authentic to yourself, and what you feel when you drink the coffee, that's the authentic experience. But it's again, it's just choices, right? It's just different ways of thinking about it, and I think it's a fascinating, fascinating, uh, question. And if anyone is, is interested in more, I, I, I have a lot of reading links, talks, things to, to share about that. Thank you so much, everyone. Wonderful discussion. Thank you. That was one of the many lectures we hosted at World of Coffee Berlin last June. Remember to check out our show notes for relevant links, including a link to worldofcoffee.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA's podcast 2019 World of Coffee Lecture Series, supported by listeners like you. Thank you for joining us. 